I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is one of the industry's most experienced and most respected reinsurance brokers, with an incredibly broad and deep perspective to share on the industry. His broking house, Willis Re, is always first out of the blocks after the major renewal dates, with its first view reports into the state of the reinsurance market. Given the exceptional nature of this particular renewal, I was delighted to have some time with James Vickers, chair of Willis Re International. We spoke at length about the hardening market, the impact of the class of 2020, and of course, the potential costs and all the coverage issues surrounding COVID-19. James is an exceptionally clear-thinking and eloquent commentator, so I highly recommend the half-hour conversation that follows. And do make sure you accompany this podcast with a read of Willis Rees' 1121 First View Report, which they have entitled Firming Landscape. I will leave a link in the notes. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company, and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995, when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter. And if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes and let's get on with the podcast. So James, Thanks so much for giving us some time at this time of year. What kind of a renewal has it been? Has it been really, really busy? There was a lot of build-up to this renewal, quite a lot of hype around it this year, perhaps understandably. But what was the nature of this renewal in the end? And what does it feel like? And how did it compare to any other significant renewals we've had in the past? Well, Mark, thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak to you. And yes, you are right. There was a lot of hype about this renewal, particularly a lot of talk about reinsurance pricing increasing, reinsurers looking to get back to price adequacy. And there was quite a lot of bold talk in the Monte Carlo and Baden-Baden virtual conferences. There was also a lot of talk around exclusionary language, particularly for pandemic and contagious diseases, and to some extent around silent cyber. And both brokers and seeding companies approached reinsurers very early, trying to make sure that the exclusionary language could be ironed out in advance before discussions around price. That actually didn't happen. And the discussions around exclusionary language, particularly for contagious disease, was tortuous and was only really concluded towards the end 
when firm order terms were being handed out. So in a sense, it's been a a different renewal. It's been a renewal that's been more characterised around discussions over coverage and exclusions rather than so much price. I think that buyers had accepted in principle that the rate reductions they've enjoyed for the last number of years have probably come to an end. Maybe the degree of rate increase that was finally seen was a lot less than reinsurers wanted, but to be fair, it was a rate increase all the same. So it's been a slightly different renewal to any we've seen previously. It's not a true hard market renewal because there's lots of capacity. And we found that once firm order terms in most lines of business, there are still a few that are very constrained. In most lines of business, once firm order terms were given, things were placed and outstanding questions around exclusionary language were closed out. So a late renewal, a very late renewal, despite the best efforts of people to get started early. But at the end of the day, I think satisfactory from the buyer's point of view, probably slightly disappointing from reinsurers, but they should step back and look at the portfolio as a whole because they have arrested the downward movement in rates and they have achieved across their portfolios an improvement in pricing. Thanks very much for that, James. That's a really good opener. I think we're going to go into all of those points. We might as well start with that rate adequacy question. So when those reinsurers look back in the middle of January and, and see their signed lines and tot everything up, are they going to be happier? Are they going to be happy that in the aggregate, they've got themselves into a position of rate adequacy where they can be happy about the underlying profitability globally of their portfolios? Oh, I think there's no doubt that they're going to be happier that they've achieved an improvement. Now, whether they are happy over their entire portfolio, I think, depends on the mix of their portfolio and depends on their aspirations, their cost of capital, and a number of other factors. I think on an overall portfolio basis, most reinsurers will see that they've taken a reasonable step forward. There are, of course, areas of the portfolio, particular lines of business, particular territories where they may be less happy, but on an overall portfolio basis, it's an improvement. So do you think there'll be areas where they'll be looking to keep pushing? I suppose what I would really like to ask is how long do you think this hardening can continue? So it's hardening, not hard. And also one of the element, the other element of your report just out is that the capital levels have recovered very well mm. and are now 3% above where they were this time last year. So how long do you feel can the hardening continue Whereas, so that reinsurers can be, do you think reinsurers will actually ever get to be properly happy and remediate the final little parts of their portfolios that, uh, that, that they, they, will, they might have missed out on this time? Well, it's definitely true that this is not a capital-starved market. I mean, if we look at the historically difficult markets, 2005, early 2000s, there was a severe shortage of capital. That is not what's happening in the market now. Capital is available. We've seen new capital come in. We've seen existing reinsurers replenish their capital as their investment return have improved. But there is this underlying problem that the outlook for investment income is pretty miserable and not likely to improve much. And therefore, underwriting profitability is the only way forward. So yes, I think that the capitals that we've seen so far, it has been quite disciplined. If the structures are not acceptable or to their liking, or if the underlying portfolios and the terms are not acceptable, reinsurers are not prepared to support. 
Yes, of course, every reinsurer has a slightly different appetite. But I think after a number of poor years, reinsurers really do need to see a return to some form of sustainable underwriting profitability before perhaps the hardening eases off. I think it's important to remember that with the very low interest rate environment, that the fresh premiums that are coming in, the reinvestment rate is just falling away. I mean, a few years ago, fresh premiums coming in could be invested two and a half, three percent return. It's probably 0.7, And if you turn that back into combined ratios, it means that reinsurers, instead of being able to write in the late 90s combined ratios, then use their investment income to help generate an acceptable ROE, they need to be in the low 90s to produce the type of ROEs that they're talking to their stakeholders about. And yes, we may be getting there, but it hasn't been done yet. This time last year, none of us could imagine COVID and the impact that that's had. So we probably need a year or two of reasonable underwriting profit before this trend will flatten out. So you think that the hardening trend should be able to be maintained just simply almost by will alone? Is that, Would that be it? I think there's an element of that. I mean, obviously, within the portfolios, you've got some classes of business, some clients who performed very well, and they would, some of them have put a little bit into the pot. They have paid modest increases. Are they prepared to pay more in the future? Don't know. But there are certainly areas that have been underperforming and may still be underperforming and more remedial action is needed. What about the demand side? We've had the most uncertain year of all time well, for a very, very long time. Usually that would put a great fire under, under demand uh, as uh, reinsurance is mm. the business of removing uncertainty for the seedants. Has there been a significant increase in demand? There has, it's interesting, it's balanced. On the proportional side, particularly on portfolios where the underlying business has had significant remedial action, I'm talking here about US casualties, some specialty marine lines and things like that. The primary seeding companies are becoming more confident that their own portfolios and their own original underwriting is going to generate a profit. So some of them are perhaps dialing back slightly on their pro rata sessions. But having said that, they're pretty keen to manage their net. So the demand for excess of loss is absolutely not abated. The demand for earnings volatility protection is, if anything, growing. Because if we've seen with the lack of investment income that the imperative of producing underwriting profit grows. So overall, I would say that, yes, there's been a slight reduction in some areas on pro rata, but I suspect that's been offset by excess of loss purchases. Do you think that increased confidence on the part of some of those seedants? Is that a sign, i.e. this kind of, if you don't want to take it, reinsurer, at these terms, then I'm happy to retain more? Is that a sign that that hardening really can't last, that if seedants are more bullish? It's more related to the original primary business, I think. you know. And in some lines of business, it isn't just a rate issue. It's that primary companies have dramatically reduced their capacity, the size of line that they're putting out there. So the retail brokers are really struggling to fill out their orders. And in some lines of business, there is still emerging claims, social inflation, severity. All of these problems are still coming through. So I don't see that in some lines of business that we've actually reached a point where uh, things may be 
calming down a bit, but I think they're far from softening. One of the big stories us journalists have been trailing all year, I mean, getting it very excited about, was the retro market having a bit mm. of dislocation. And it seemed, from your report, it, it looks like it was a bit of a damp squib in the end. Is that, it was, is that right, the right way of describing it? And what, do, and what does that ultimate flexibility that seems to be in that retro market tell us about that line of business ultimately? Well, I mean, it it is true that we were all very concerned about what the retro market might look like at 1-1-2020. But I think there's a combination of things that have happened that have actually eased back. For a start, a lot of buyers of retro. Some of them, it's a must-have. Some of them, it's a nice-to-have. And certainly the ones that were in the nice-to-have category were looking, I think, quite carefully at what the cost of their retro might be at 1-1-2021 looked at the improvements they were getting their portfolio. Some of them have increased their capital and they basically decided they would increase their retentions a bit and buy perhaps a little bit less retro. So the total demand for retrocession did actually step down a little bit. At the same time, yes, there was this problem we'd all talked about, trapped capital from ILS markets on the retro side. That turned out to be not quite as severe as expected. And then perhaps the last, perhaps again, unexpected card was the extent to which some traditional reinsurers began to allocate capacity to retro. Now, some of them had increased their own capital quite significantly and saw retro as an interesting market to start to write again and give capacity. So the net effect was that the supply demand dynamic was actually much, much better balanced with almost slightly more supply. I think the other thing we should say is that a lot of buyers realized that some of the products that they like to buy, particularly aggregate retro covers, were going to be extremely difficult and therefore probably unaffordable. So there was a bit more of a move towards occurrence coverage, which then led some people to actually move into the publicly traded cap bond market as well. And they bought capacity in that area as well. So it was very noticeable at this renewal that no reinsurers, even on some of the peak capacity zones that we were placing, were saying, look, I've got a problem with my retro. I'm not sure I can write these size lines. That was just not talked about this renewal, whereas it had been talked about in previous renewals. So it's all about capital. Capital moved around in its different forms and it uh, came to the rescue in one way or another. But it's also changing risk appetites as well. I think that some of the first tier reinsurers they looked at their portfolios, they looked at what was going on and thought, well, we'll just, we'll retain a little bit more here. Another big story, obviously the big, probably the biggest story other than COVID, which I'm sure we'll get to later on about 2020 would be the class of 2020. Mm. And did it make any impact on the renewal? I could find a couple of lines in, in, in something on property in the UK. I wonder if you can give me an assessment of, did they make an impact on, on the renewal or, or was it far too soon? I think it's probably fair to say it's too soon to work out exactly what impact. To be fair, a lot of them were rushing to get their ratings in place and their paper all sorted out. To be fair, most of them managed to do it by the middle or towards the end of December. But that was perhaps a little bit late in some areas. So I think, yeah, we'll see what they've managed to write and what they've managed to put on the books. But I've, on balance, it's too early to tell. And then, of course, as you know, a number of them have got different strategies then some of them are 
few of them are pure reinsurers, but most of them are looking to write a combination of reinsurance and insurance. And it'll be interesting to see how that works its way through. And of course, we shouldn't forget that there were some abortive efforts to start up some new capital, new reinsurers, which didn't come off. So it's easy to say, look, there's been this rush of money. And it's true, there's been a, there's been a decent amount raised. But actually, you need to look quite carefully at the individuals behind those companies and the business plans they've put forward and compare that against the ones who were not successful at the moment. Would you say, knowing what we know now at 1-1, what has we learned at this, this big data point of this massive renewal told us about what your gut feeling is for the prospects for this class of 2020 going forward as, as they try to build long-term franchises? I think it's going to be tougher than perhaps they anticipated because the existing incumbents are not going to give up in an improving market. And perhaps some who've started, the newer companies who started in the last couple of years, they have already got onto business with modest lines and a few of them have raised quite a lot more capital. And it's an awful lot easier when you've already got a toehold in a program or a small line to turn a small line into a medium-sized line than to come on new completely in the new. So we'll have to see. My personal view is the ones who are adopting a dual strategy of insurance and reinsurance that they may find that they have a, a better long-term outlook. Although, of course, setting up an insurance platform, particularly in the US to write excess and surplus lines business is a non-trivial activity. But there, there does seem to be in some lines of business still a real demand for capacity to come in. One of the interesting strategic things of your report was the fact that you noted a harder stance from the Anglo-Saxon markets. Mm. Isn't it always the way at this renewal? And that was contrasting, you contrasted this with a greater flexibility from continental reinsurers. Do you think in the end, did this harder stance backfire on the Anglo-Saxons? There's one area in particular where it was more difficult the Anglo-Saxon, and this was on the issue of silent cyber where Lloyd's has taken a very strong position, and some of the Bermudians who have Lloyd's affiliates took an equally strong position. Now, it's not that the continental markets are happily writing silent cyber, but they showed a bit more flexibility in terms of being prepared to delve into the original wordings and understand exactly where the exposures might be. And for those seeding companies who could demonstrate that actually their original policy form was quite modest in this area and their exposures were relatively benign or non-existent. They were prepared to carry on without any form of exclusion. Whereas Lloyd's, there was a stricter position on silent cyber. Obviously, it, it's a very wide world out there. Do you think you could identify any single line of business or any geography or any segment of the reinsurance world that you could describe as being in a genuinely hard market out of all this? I think... Some of the long tail excess of loss business in the States is, is in that situation. Everybody wants to write some of the on a quota share basis, but on an excess of loss basis, particularly for general third party liability and professional lines, and to some extent healthcare, where we're beginning to see not just social inflation, but some nuclear claims, nuclear court verdicts, those fall really heavily on excess of loss markets. So that is definitely a difficult area. Multi-line aggregate covers, again, difficult. Aggregates have been perhaps 
hit more than reinsurers anticipated. So there's had to be quite a lot of restructuring. They're a very popular product, particularly in Europe, because they give a lot of capital relief under Solvency II. And very few new markets have wanted to be involved in that line of business. So it's been a question of negotiating with existing reinsurers and not just repricing, but restructuring to get things into a position that they can be renewed. And then I think as a generality, pretty much across the world, property per risk business has been difficult. There just seems to be, we mentioned this before, we've seen it over the last couple of years, there just seems to be more mid-size and large fire losses. It doesn't really matter what country you look in. And the property risk access of loss market is difficult. It's also a market where quite a lot of seating companies like to buy quite low, if possible. And so the bottom end of those programs is not at all straightforward. We're talking about 2021 renewals, so we couldn't possibly do it that without talking about COVID, the, the big <laughs> elephant in the room. So we managed to come all this way without specifically addressing it. But I think we've got four or five questions I'd like to ask you about it to really get into it. One of the most striking things from your report in the introduction, in fact, was to say that the cost of COVID losses weren't really considered in this renewal and that that was actually a sensible thing to do. Why did you say that? And can we go into the detail behind that? Right. Well, I mean, I think the issue with the COVID claims, we know on the primary basis, we're still waiting, for example, in the UK to hear what the Supreme Court is going to say. We've got cases going on in Australia and the US. So we've got this whole uncertainty of what's going on on the original policies and how claims will be paid. On top of that, you then add the issues, well, fine, as these claims emerge, how are they going to be recovered under reinsurance contracts? And that becomes extremely complicated, both case by case, structure by structure. And to try to compress these complex discussions into a renewal discussion was just simply not reasonable and was not acceptable. So we thought it was very sensible that both seeding companies who had they're beginning to put out claims advices, or at least preliminary advices, not many of them actually asking for collections, and reinsurers waiting, frankly, until they see the actual collection advices and how they're going to be presented to them. It didn't make sense for either party to actually start saying, well, let's take into account the cost of a COVID claim. So the discussions are ongoing, and I think they've just really not been taken into account. Now, how they will play out during the rest of 2021 and maybe into 2022, there'll be many and varied. As I said, it's very, very contract and client and country specific. Well, that's about the pre-existing portfolio that mm. was pre-COVID, that mm. what was in place before COVID and what's going to get mm. probably hit or not hit by COVID. What's the ongoing from 1-1 going into 2021? What's the position from reinsurers generally going forward in terms of coverage for communicable disease or otherwise? Generally, it's not covered anymore. Now, having said that, every cover has got probably some form of COVID exclusion on it. There's not been a market consensus over a blanket exclusion that everybody can get behind. There have been, of course, a number of different wordings out there. But any contract which has some form of potential 
contagious disease exclusion will be carrying some form of exclusionary language on it. A lot of them based around the standard market clauses, but with various right backs, specific right backs relating to that seeding company's actual original policy wording. So I think, you know, we can't say that it's totally excluded, but it is largely excluded and any potential exposures would be very small. And is that generally because reinsurers are comfortable that the seedants themselves are, of course, as their own portfolio, underlying portfolios coming up for renewal, that they are applying similar exclusions to their original clients? Yes, that's basically it. I mean, as I said, there are a few territory specific issues, but essentially that's right. The insurance industry as a whole, both the primary insurance and the reinsurance industry as a whole, are working their way to make sure that they're not exposed to this anymore. We were talking about mostly about non-damage BI coverage, property coverage. Even BI coverage is has developed so slowly that it hasn't been able to impact this renewal mm. yet. And obviously, there's also the potential for casualty losses at some mm. point in the future, which is going to be much, much longer <laughs> tail. We had casualty renewals. So how did the terms and conditions try to address those potential clashes and aggregation issues that might need to be clarified in casualty treaties? Well, again, I mean, there are COVID exclusions are less common on casualty treaties because there's been a lot more detailed discussion between seeding companies and reinsurers over exactly what's contained within their original underwriting. And there has been, in some levels, reinsurers have had sufficient comfort, but certainly on the clash and aggregation, there's been a lot of discussion about making sure that intentions and contract wordings actually match up. So you're right, the challenge on the casualty side is there have been very few claims advised coming through. But there has been a lot of work between reinsurers and senior companies to make sure that they understand what exposures might be there. And if claims do come through, how they might be treated. I suppose leading me to one of my last questions on this would be, in general, the spirit of cooperation between Cedents and reinsurers sounds like it's been pretty good. What's your gut feeling in terms of the potential for reinsurance disputes over COVID? Well, I mean, there's always a potential, but hopefully, I'm not saying that the discussions are going to be straightforward, but hopefully commercial pragmatic solutions can be reached somewhere down the line. I mean, what we should never take our eye off is that reinsurance is a long-term game and maintaining continuity, maintaining relationships is important. Very, very important. Having said that, there may be cases where things don't go according to plan, but certainly we would hope very much that there wouldn't be many disputes, but we can't say there won't be some at some stage. Is it really what gives you most optimism is the fact that we're very well capitalised, it's a competitive market, the market's clearing and functioning and, and is competitive? Is that actually going to give you more confidence that the commercial side of things would go through in that we haven't had any, this has not been a hard market that has seen too many people going to run off or, or anything like that, for example, which then can, of course, when a bit, when a reinsurer goes into runoff and suddenly is not in the market anymore, then that's where the disputes often arise. Uh, yes. I mean, there's always that issue because one of the things that happened in the last year or two is that there's been very aggressive management of portfolios and a lot of companies now it's a standard form of capital management to package up certain portfolios of business that they don't want to and hand them over to a runoff company but i think for the mainstream covid claims at the moment we're hopefully we're not in that position yet although like 
a lot of difficult claims, they will take time to settle. And time, of course, is a great healer <laughs> uh, for both reinsurers and insurers. The longer it takes to settle, the easier it is ultimately to manage. Particularly if we've had a few really reasonably good underwriting profitable years going forward before we have to start um, signing checks and sending up real cash. Yes. I mean, putting up reserves is one thing you will have seen. A lot of the reinsurers have put up, in some cases, quite significant reserves, but most of them have been stressing that the vast bulk of those reserves are IBNR. And we'll wait and see whether they've been overly prudent or not. Is another factor that may give you optimism that the losses themselves are not that massive, that they are payable, that they are affordable? Yes. When it first happened, there were various estimates given. And some of them were really very big, up to north of $100 billion, although the market consensus seemed to be in the $60 to $70 billion range. Now, $60 to $70 billion put against the global reinsurance market capital and taking into account that you would probably take several years to get anywhere near that is actually a manageable number. And yes, I know, I think it's about $20 billion of reserves have been put up so far by insurers and reinsurers. As I said, the bulk of those reserves are still IBNR. So you're optimistic that no one wants to be the person who didn't pay their COVID-19 loss because it's going to cost them so much in the long term? I think that uh, appropriate commercial understanding in most cases will be reached. And just to clarify, you really don't think by parking this issue, no one's actually sort of ducking the issue. They're not. They're no, not just... no, nobody's nobody. I can assure you, nobody is ducking the issue. But the underlying issues are really complicated. I mean, you have to get into the detail of the policy wording, look at what is going on in the local courts, interpreting those policy wordings. And then once those are settled, and in most cases, I mean, you've seen there have been some interesting decisions coming out of places like South Africa and Australia, but they're all being appealed at the moment. So we've not, like they are in the UK, we've not come to a final landing on you know, what's going to be paid by the original policies. That's the first building block. And then the second building block was, okay, if that's how it's going to be paid, how are we going to recover it under our reinsurances? It's all going to be something to look forward to for the rest of this year, 2021. I think it probably, and maybe may, may may be a bit longer, longer than that. <laughs> Well, certainly, I hope that we'll be sitting here this time next year, James, discussing now that COVID had been taken into account, what happened. But uh, we haven't been able to have the discussion uh, in 2021. No. Uh, so, James, I haven't got any more questions. Do you think there's any other business that we should be discussing here? I think the one point I'd just make is that when COVID started back in March, not only was there the concern over what the insured and reinsured losses might mean, but there was a great concern of what that might do to insurance companies' premium as we were looking at a recession. And what is really quite remarkable is the way that, other than some very obvious travel-related lines of business, basically personal lines and SME and a lot of commercial insurance premiums have held up remarkably well. We're not seeing people's EPIs dropping. And it's really showing that insurance is not a discretionary purchase. We were nervous. I can remember back in March, gosh, you know, what's going to happen? Everyone's EPIs are going to fall away. And that hasn't happened. Now, obviously, growth is perhaps crimped a little bit. But it's very remarkable how the insurance industry has held itself together and maintained its position, which was a little bit surprising. 
And then the other one is the extent of government support, not just on the wider economic front, but also specifically in some areas like credit. So maybe we're all fooling ourselves and maybe the huge amount of government support that's been given, particularly in the first world economies, is masking or delaying a more difficult position down the line. But certainly 2020 has turned out to be far better than any of us dared to have hoped. So we're also very glad that we work in such a resilient uh, business, James. Well, I think compared to a lot of other businesses, we're extremely fortunate. We really are. Counting our blessings going into 2021. So thank you so much, James. I've really enjoyed our conversation as, as always, our New Year's tradition. And long may it continue. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mark. Good to speak to you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan, in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.advantage.com the voice of insurance.com.